This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, this is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and I'm here today with Dr. Angela Riato. Hello. And we're going to talk to Dr. Professor John Kuhn about the naval experience of the U.S. Navy during and especially after World War I. So, Dr. Kuhn, welcome. Hey, it's good to be here, John. Angela. So let's go ahead and start by talking about kind of uh, perhaps the obvious starting point, which is in the popular imagination and maybe uh, even in scholarly imagination, for the United States, World War One is is a land war. It, you know, it's it's American GIs and Marines fighting in the Mozargonne and you know in the forests of France. So, from a naval perspective, why is that wrong? Yeah, and it couldn't be more wrong. the The entire reason we are in the war is is because of global trade. Uh, the United States had maintained as as an article of international law that the United States rigidly adhered to for his entire history at that point in time to free and open uh, navigation of the seas in wartime by neutrals in the rights of the neutrals. The United States had been very aggressive in defending the rights of neutrals on, on the seas. Um, it had sent Alfred Thayer Mahan to the London Conference in 1909 to represent the United States in terms of, of, of those rights of neutrals on the seas, although Mahan was perhaps not the correct choice because he actually favored commerce warfare as, as a means to an end. But but the United States uh, comes into World War I entirely because of the unrestricted submarine campaign. We almost come in in 1915 with the sinking of the Lusitania um, when the Germans back off and decide to adhere at least superficially to uh, uh, internationally sanctioned cruiser warfare rules. Um, Which, as I understand it, required basically that, that, that naval battles be kind of announced before they happened? Well, for commerce warfare, uh, cruiser warfare rules were essentially uh, of the, uh, a holdover from the Napoleonic period, although they'd been codified to some degree, although most of the major powers hadn't actually signed any treaties recognizing them. They'd actually been codified in London in 1909. And even though Great Britain hosted the conference, they, they, actually, they actually said they would try to abide by the rules, but they didn't sign any treaties committing them to abide by the rules, like we have UNCLOS today, which is actually a formal treaty, which the United States hasn't signed either, by the way. But, uh, but we abide by the treaty, but we don't. We're not, we're not bound by it. But it's the same thing. So the United States hadn't signed that treaty either, by the way. They, we, had, we had agreed sort of abide by it, but we, but we demanded that sort of neutrals have these powers. So these rules meant that if you were a raider, a commerce raider, you would announce yourself to your intended target, um, and, and then the target would let you put borders aboard. You could uh, uh, examine the, the bill of lading or the manifest to see if there was contraband of war on board. If there was contraband on, of war on board the ship, the ship was legitimately, and going to one of the belligerents, the ship was legitimately a target 
you could then uh, take ownership of the ship, um, and uh, uh, ideally you would put a prize crew on the ship, um, and it was now a legitimate, uh, a legitimate. Uh, 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 the ship was legitimately your ship. Now, they, the final determination would be made in an admiralty court, all right? But in wartime, some of these things, you know, you kind of waved your hand at them, but you're observed. So with the submarine warfare, this became very, very difficult. With surface raiders, uh, the, I, you could do this. In extremis, it was, considered, it was considered acceptable, although not optimal, to go ahead and and sink the target, yeah, uh, that you didn't have a prize crew, so you could sink the target ship, but you still had to provide for the safety of the crew right. and the passengers of the ship. So those, that's sort of a big broad brush hand wave at what acceptable cruiser rules were during World War One. Very chivalrous. So the, yes. yes, chivalry is a good word for it. It's it. So this kind of flies in the face of the point of submarines, right? That they kind of announce themselves and you have this as... as right, so they announce themselves, they give the crew a chance. So by the time we get to 1960, the Germans are adhering to this form of warfare, but the, the essentially what the rules are is the submarines will surface, they will signal the ship, we are, we, uh, we're not going to board you, but we are going to sink you, we think you have contraband of war because you're flying a British flag. Uh, or we just think you have contraband of war, you have 15 minutes to get off the ship, yeah. and we'll wait. Okay. Now, the British respond to this with also an illegal mechanism of warfare, the Q-ship, which is the disguised merchant ship. Uh, you're not supposed to disguise the merchant ship and be deceptive. You're supposed to be uh, above board, so to speak, with your guns and your crew. Right. Um, and that's where the term above board comes from. Uh, that the pirate ships always kept their stuff below board and you kept above board. So so, so, so that's what they would expect. And the British had these Q-ships with, with guns hidden under canvases or where a lifeboat might be. They'd have a canvas, but there'd be no lifeboat. There'd be a, you know, a 15-centimeter uh, gun, you know, that, to sink the ship. Um, and so this was illegal, too. And the United States actually protested against the use of cruise ships. But doing this, the Germans were actually having a lot of success. They were actually sinking quite a bit of ships with this method, but they were losing submarines to the Q ships, all right? But they were effective, okay? Mm -hmm. They were particularly effective in places that the British couldn't patrol, like the South Atlantic, against the grain ships from South America, from Argentina, Brazil, and uh, Argentina, Brazil, and Chile, but primarily Argentina and Brazil. So... So they, so the Germans were actually being effective this way. But the United States did not come into the war because of that. As long as the Germans observed the rules, and their ambassador in Washington was very, very, very uh, energetic in ensuring that Washington understood what the Germans were doing. There were some accidents, uh, no Lusitania-level accidents, but there were some accidents. Um, uh, interesting enough, some of those accidents uh, were for ships that didn't have any American citizens on board, so the Americans didn't really protest about it. It didn't come into the war because maybe a British passenger ship with only British uh, citizens or French citizens or Italian citizens was sunk. Mm -hmm. So this was really uh, the, the situation when Germany made the decision that with unrestricted submarine warfare, they could knock, uh, not just Great Britain, they could knock the Allied powers out of the war. So France and Italy were also part of the unrestricted warfare target. 
So this is one of the huge strategic decisions of the war. And it gets to that higher question of what was this war about? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and how was it fought? And what, what means and forms of warfare were, were effective and should be part of the larger narrative of the war? I'm not arguing that the war was all about maritime warfare. I'm just arguing that the maritime component uh, has been reduced, underplayed, because quite frankly, it's difficult. People don't like struggling with the detail of uh, political economy in a globalized trading system that relies primarily on maritime trade, which the globalized world of that period relied on, and mm-hmm. in, in our own world relies on even more than they relied on it. So the world would starve today without maritime shipping. Um, close down the Suez Canal and the Strait of Malacca, and people will start to starve almost immediately. Okay. Um, so the uh, so this is a problem, but for the American narrative, the idea that we're going to fight a war for democracy is nonsense. We're going to fight a war for the neutral rights of shipping, and for the rights of neutral maritime powers, of which the United States is. In that period, the United States has the second largest merchant fleet in the world, um, and so the United States has a considerable component of sea power that is economic. Mm-hmm. And that's why we go to war against the Germans. So you said the Germans initially start following the rules, like 1915, 1916. When the Americans start sending troops to France, um, I know I was reading one of their memoirs uh, of the main National Guard, and they said that they were worried about submarines sinking their ships on the way to traveling to France. Did the Germans change tactics then when they realized that the Americans were going to be involved? They were like, we're not going to follow the rules anymore? Well, the, the primary area for the German submarine warfare was in the Western approaches and in the Irish Sea. Okay, so the Western approaches are the approaches to the British Isles, west of the British Isles, okay, in, including, you know, the northern parts of the Faroes and the Orkneys and, and all of those. Um, and then the uh, and then the Irish Sea, um, and so and their approach was signal submarines. The longest range submarines they had uh, uh, would operate there independently uh, against independent merchant ships. And as long as ships weren't convoyed, they had a great amount of success because you can't escort every single mm-hmm. merchant ship with a single convoy escort. The only convoys that were being escorted up until the up until about April of 1917 were troop ship convoys. Troop ship convoys in the Mediterranean, British troop ship convoys back and forth to across the Channel, and then the uh, soon to be American troop ship convoys. It was those convoys and their success against the submarine. How many how many of you remember that great German submarine coup where the Germans sent? Uh, a British regiment to the bottom, or a French chasseurs d'Afrique to the bottom, or Italian uh, Italian uh, colonial troops to the bottom uh, in in a troop ship. You don't. They didn't go to the bottom. Why? They were in convoy and they were escorted. Mm-hmm. Submarines don't do well against escorted convoys, particularly single submarines. And uh, if there's an escort, they tend to want to go sinker. When they go sinker, the submarines back then, when they go under the water, that's sinker, I'm sorry, I'm using, going, I'm getting Navy on you here, I'm sorry <laughs> about that. When they go under the water, they, their rate is slower. Setting up a target solution takes more time. It's almost impossible um, 
the Lusitania, for example, was a miracle that that shot worked because he actually did that shot under the water, not on the surface. And so, so actually shooting an escorted convoy. Now, the convoy, if it's escorted with troop ships, it's probably composed of fast troop ships, which means they're probably going quite a bit faster than your normal merchant ship will go. Your normal merchant ship might be slugging along at 8, 9, 10, maybe 12 knots. Why slower? Saves money. Don't eat as much of the coal, don't need to be refueled as much. Um, so these troop ships, though, we're talking about 15, 16, 17 knots, all right? Very difficult to get a target solution with a submarine underwater on that. Two, if the submarine surfaces to try to go faster to catch the convoy and at least get off one shot on one ship in the convoy, the, the submarine is likely to be detected by the escort and attacked. So is our whole fear around submarines, is that a constructed narrative that it wasn't actually real? Uh, the fear for our troop ships was weird, but the danger was very, very low. Submarine success against escorted convoys in World War I was abysmal. It was abysmal. So, okay, And that's what defeated the submarine in World War I. And you could have just, you could have just convoyed alone, and that would have defeated the submarine. Uh, the British uh, uh, Duff Committee made that conclusion, and when the Royal Navy said, well, we still don't want a convoy because we don't have enough escorts for the convoy, Duff said the convoys alone will reduce the sinkings. Because remember, the submarine gets off one shot, that's the only shot he's getting off. Mm -hmm. He's not get, catching up. So 40 ships in a convoy, no escort, submarine intercepts the convoy, shoot one ship, the other 39 get in. Single ship, S, uh, uh, sink one ship, you've sunk 100% of the target. Sink one ship, you've sunk 140th percent of the target. And so convoy alone, from a mathematical perspective in the Duff Committee, which was the committee the British put together to study this uh, and solve the problem, said you don't even need escorts for these convoys to win the war. And by the summer of 1917, that was the case. And the British also figured out that they didn't need a lot of escorts. Uh, one or two escorts for a medium-sized convoy was all they needed, and then seaplanes kind of looking for submarines on the surface. So naval air power was a big part of the solution to this problem so as well. Cool. So we've got... Yeah, it's not known. Yeah, and it's, well, it's not well known, even though the scholarship on this has been out for years and years and years by John Terrain. You know, from 1970s, scholarship has pointed this out. But it's not a sexy narrative. It's not Goose and Maverick in their F-14s or their F-18s, mm -hmm. okay? It's anti-submarine warfare, which is like watching paint dry. So it doesn't capture the public imagination unless it's like, you know, Das Boot and Wolf Packs and, you know, and all of this sort of Hollywood stuff. And it's not the Lost Battalion or the Marine right. Bella Woods. And you certainly don't go to war over this kind of thing, but you do. Mm -hmm. So we, we let's zoom out a little bit. Um, I, I think our listeners are probably familiar with the scaling of the American economy and the Army. How does the Navy respond to the challenge of its first European Great Power War? How, what what is it? What happens in terms of ships? Well, in terms of personnel? It, and again, it, the United States is caught grossly unprepared uh, for this war. Uh, the Navy is. It, we have a big Navy. The problem is, uh, it's too big, um, and it's not a balanced Navy. It's uh, uh, it's it's balanced enough. 
But what we find is we don't have enough crews to crew the, crew the destroyers that Great Britain needs. So when we come into the war, Sims sends a message back prior to us coming into the war saying, hey, this submarine thing's a disaster. Britain is losing the war. If we don't help them with destroyer uh, and, and escort vessels, Great Britain is going to lose the war. And they will. Uh, but not just Great Britain, uh, Italy and France. I mean, France and Italy are far closer to breaking than Great Britain is because of the submarine. Um, and so the United States Navy is caught unprepared. It's thinking battleships, and it's got the 1916 fleet building program, which is the largest fleet building program in history. Now, think about what I just said. I didn't say the largest American fleet building program in history. I said the largest fleet building program in history period, by money, in terms of money. Uh, it's the equivalent of the Two Ocean Navy Act of 1940. We are on track to build a navy larger than the Royal Navy by a factor of one and a half, okay? Uh, and this is Wilson's response to the Germans and to the British and their bullying of the United States as a neutral power in this conflict, okay, is to spend uh, the bulk of our defense dollar on the navy. Well, what we're buying, though, is battleships. We want to build 48 battleships, 48 states, 48 battleships. Makes <laughs> sense, right? And what we have to do is we have to rob the crews from the battleships to crew up the destroyers, the most recent destroyers that we have, which have only been built to protect the battleships, okay? And we send 35 destroyers across, and Josephus Daniels robs those crews. He robs he robs Peter to pay Paul, Paul in this case being the anti-submarine warfare effort, and that is actually what causes the British to escort convoys. They go, well, we're going to get 35 American destroyers. We can start to apply those destroyers that we have to convoying. And so they start to convoy in, in, uh, in May of uh, 1917. And that's because the Americans do that. But we're on, we, this is serendipity, folks. This isn't the fact that the Americans are brilliant and they knew the British needed destroyers. It's the fact that in war, you see expediency becomes the virtue. Mm -hmm. And so we do have the destroyers. Uh, Daniels had ordered them ready to deploy prior to the declaration of war. And, and uh, the only problem was finding the crews. And we went and we actually got those crews from the battleships, mm. all right? Because the battleships weren't needed for the war, we needed destroyers to escort convoys and hunt submarines, or destroyers to protect the British battle fleet in Scapa Flow. Sometimes we forget the British were more concerned about their fleet in Scapa Flow up until the 11th hour when they realized that that fleet wasn't going to mean anything if the French and the Italians said we need to make a compromise peace. All right, I have two questions. Okay. Who's Josephus Daniels? And are destroyers cheaper and faster to build than battleships? Destroyers are way cheaper than battleships. They're much easier to build. By the time we get to the end of World War I, the United States will have something on the order of over 300 destroyers, and we'll be actually building the most modern destroyers that we can build. And in fact, we'll have so many destroyers after the war that we'll put many of them in mothballs, and many of those destroyers will be dragged out and used during World War II. Wow. Fifty of them will be given to the British as part of Lend-Lease, okay. the, the, the four-stack of destroyers. So that's the destroyer piece. Yeah, destroyers are cheap and easy to build unless you're in the United States today where we call cruisers destroyers. And so the destroyers that we're building today aren't destroyers. They're actually cruisers, and they're very, very expensive. <laughs> but real destroyers, Corvettes, light destroyer escorts, 
are actually pretty cheap to build unless you're the United States shipbuilding industry, and then they're expensive, which is why I would just buy them cheaply from other people like Automalar in Italy and, and, buy, and, and buy them from the Japanese. They know how to build a cheap destroyer. I'd buy them from them too, and they're good. They're good destroyers. Japanese build good destroyers. Josephus Daniels, Secretary of the Navy, longest-serving Secretary of the Navy in the history of the United States, uh, was essentially Wilson's campaign manager in 1912, a newspaperman from Raleigh, North Carolina. Wilson rewards him by making him secretary of the most important department uh, in, in the government, which uh, uh, Wilson regarded as the Navy Department. <laughs> the War Department's not the most important department. We don't need a big army. Big armies are a threat to democracy. We need a big Navy because the British and the Germans are trying to bully us. So he makes him, and he will stay in there and Daniels is essentially Wilson's primary foreign policy advisor throughout the war. He's also his domestic policy advisor, and Wilson never replaces him. Okay? His assistant secretary of the Navy, so Josephus Daniels' assistant secretary of the Navy, is a young man, it's sort of uh, uh, Wilson's nod to the progressive Democrats in New York, is Franklin Delano Roosevelt, mm -hmm. who's the assistant secretary of the Navy, and he's... Assistant Secretary of the Navy for the entire two administrations okay. of Wilson's administration, mm -hmm. and then back up to him will be uh, will be uh, Teddy Roosevelt Jr. will be mm -hmm. uh, the backup, and eventually Teddy Roosevelt Jr. will become the acting Secretary of the Navy in the final days of the Wilson administration, uh, and in uh, in and in, in part of the Harding administration, he'll actually be acting Secretary of the Navy. So, so Ted Jr. Yeah, awesome. Ted. So we, we fight the war. The Navy, of course, is doing lots of convoy escorting, fighting submarines. The war ends late 1918. Yeah. How does the U.S. Navy look back at its performance? So uh, after the war, the, the, Navy, um, the Navy mechanisms for looking at lessons learned resides in three places. Okay? The two most mature places are the Naval War College, and uh, the general board. Where the general board is created as kind of a naval general staff uh, in 1900 after the catastrophe of the Spanish-American War and the perceived poor performance of the United States military and the poor performance of the Navy in the war. Even though we win the war, the Navy doesn't regard it as a, as a stunning success. And so the general board is formed. And this is an advisory policy body to the Secretary of the Navy composed of the senior uh, admirals and, and promising young captains. Captains, army audience are, are like colonels. They're 06s, they're very senior naval officers. Guys, that, that's what they are before they become an admiral. Um, and and uh, that's about seven or eight people. And at their head is the most senior officer in the Navy, Admiral of the Navy, which is a completely unique, distinct rank only ever held by one man, George Dewey, the victor of Manila Bay. And Dewey actually is a very good leader of this. So they look at lessons learned. Now, Dewey's dead by the time the war ends, and so the war falls into the hands of his chosen successors. None of them, by the way, are, are elevated to Dewey's rank as president of the general board. They become chairman of the executive committee of the German general board. The first one of these is a guy named uh, Charles Badger, and then another guy named Winterhalter, Admiral Winterhalter, becomes his replacement. These guys are usually commanders-in-chief of the U.S. fleet, so they held a four-star command before downsizing to rear admirals as head of the general mm -hmm. board, but they're the senior admirals of the Navy. The second body is the Naval War College, 
usually under a two-star admiral, now under a three-star admiral. Admiral William Sims takes a demotion from four stars to three stars. Sims partisans often make a big deal about this, but actually this is unusual that Sims is allowed to keep a third star as president of the Naval War. And he reopens the, the Naval War College upon returning from Europe and almost immediately begins to look at lessons mm -hmm. learned from the war. So inside the general board at the Naval War College, the third organization is brand new. It's the Chief of Naval Operations, the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations. Initially, just a title with uh, four or five people to support the senior guy, initially a Rear Admiral during the war, Admiral Rear Admiral Benson, who's the first Chief of Naval Operations, becomes a four-star Admiral, and essentially the Chief of Service, although he's not really the Chief of Service at this point. Uh, it's not well understood that he's actually sort of uh, one among equals, all right, even though he's got a four-star billet, a shore billet, it's not a seagoing billet, and he's essentially in charge of this new uh, general staff inside the Navy Department that's actually uh, on the general board. So he's a member of the general board, as is the president of the Naval War College, as is the head of the Office of Naval Intelligence, and they're just members. They're not they're not in, in charge, all right? The, the chief in charge of the general board is really the, ex, the chairman of the executive committee, Admiral Winterhalter and then Admiral Rogers. And the guy who's really in charge of all of this is the secretary of the Navy and his assistant secretary of the Navy, mm -hmm. all right? And so they kind of run all of this. So it's a completely different situation than we have today. It's a, it's a system that does so poorly it wins World War II. Um, and which is why we replace it after World War II with a system that doesn't dear newly as good. So the Chief of Naval Operations studies these things. They move into the Army-Navy building. The staff expands during World War I. It contracts a little bit, but not much. And then they have something called the War Plans Division, mm. uh, OPNAV War Plans. And it's here where they work on the colored war plans, mm -hmm. green for Mexico, red for Great Britain, and orange for Japan, and white for domestic disturbances. And, and they also do the lessons learned. Now, the fascinating thing here is they're collegial and they're collaborative and they all kind of work together. So the Naval War Game, a war game, sort of some problems. They'll turn it over to the general board. The general board will look at ships that need to be designed. And then the war plans division will look at the war plans that need to be designed. And then, and then the fleet, which is sort of off stage, will take all of this, sort of practice sort of the lessons learned in the annual fleet exercises. So it's a really good collaborative collegial system. And nobody's really sort of better than anybody else. Uh, when we look through the lens of history, we look back at this and we sort of imprint the way we think it was done back then. That's not how it was done. The chief of naval operations is not in charge. Okay, the guy that's really in charge of all this is the Secretary of the Navy, and the Secretaries of the Navy and the Assistant Secretary of the Navy are very hands-off. They actually sort of practice a strategic level version of what we call mission command. They're very decentralized, very hands-off. Uh, they kind of let these guys run everything. So they look at the lessons learned. Um, uh, to kind of follow on, the primary lesson learned that they learn is that, you know, the battleship might not be the future of naval warfare. <laughs> Submarines are important. Submarines and mines sink more battleships than battleships do. Um, I have a transcript from the general board's meeting where they say, hey, whatever happens, we need a lot of destroyers. Destroyers are very useful in warfare. 
so whatever happens in the next war, we need to build really good destroyers, okay? And they will. They'll build really fine destroyers in the interwar period. Uh, they decide submarines are so important that at the Washington Conference, they will, uh, the, the, uh, the naval delegation from the United States will refuse to outlaw submarines, which the British and, uh, want done and which the peace activists want done. Mm. Uh, and so the United States Navy and the Japanese Navy like submarines, and they'll go, no, we think submarines are going to play an important part in the next war. And so remember, the Germans are no longer a factor after World War I. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing that Sims learns is that... Uh, that he, he does wargaming believing battleships are very important in a major uh, engagement with uh, somebody else. He doesn't think we'll ever go to war with Great Britain, so he's saying we, do, we need to make it a policy that we'll never go to war with Great Britain, that they'll either be neutral or an ally in whatever war comes next, probably war with Japan. Um, and then he wargames battleships against aircraft carriers, and in 1920 he'll declare that that the aircraft carrier is the new capital ship and that we should build as many of them as we possibly can. Uh, this is a minority opinion, but the Navy admirals kind of listen to it and go, okay, we like this idea. We're not going to put all of our money on these platforms, but the Navy policy going into the Washington conference will be to try to build as many aircraft carriers as the British have, which is about eight, mm -hmm. all right? But the battleship is still there. Okay, so they, they study the lessons learned, and, and, and in my own work, I found they actually do a pretty good job. Um, they actually do a better job than they would have because the Washington Naval Treaty actually freezes these lessons learned into place by eliminating new battleship construction and allowing for construction on all these disesteemed platforms of war the uh, aircraft carrier, the destroyer, the submarine, and the cruiser. Okay, so that's the lessons learned piece for the United States after the war. Well, so yeah, I was the question I was going to ask, which you kind of already answered, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. Um, what do they think is what's the, what's the next war going to look like? Well, it kind of gets to where I, I think Abel wanted this to go, uh, although the podcast is probably going long, which is what they think the next war is going to look like is the wrong question. What do they think the future maritime security environment is going to look like is a better question. Okay. That maritime security uh, environment of the future probably is going to include a major war that's going to require what the Navy regards as large-scale combat operations okay. at sea. And that future war is going to look like war with Japan, period. Okay. Okay, that's, that's the Navy thinks war, not war with Great Britain, uh, not war with Germany because that problem is solved at Versailles, okay? Um, war with Japan. That's the future of war. Uh, war with a former partner power in World War I is what that looks like. But the future maritime security environment is much more complex and looks like what the Navy is doing right now in 1919. And so we also need a Navy for peace. Yeah. All right, and that navy is a different navy than the navy. It, it's a much more balanced navy than an all battleship or all carrier fleet. So protect trade routes, freedom of navigation. Show the flag, presence ops, contingency operations. Um, what do we do about the communist Bolshevik revolution in Russia? Mm -hmm. Stuff like that. 
Yeah, and that takes us to kind of uh, what's happening in the interwar period, because we often think of interwar periods as periods where, as you said, a lot of AARs are being done, there's treaties being negotiated, uh, but the U.S. Navy is involved in a lot of action in, after World War I. So could you walk us through some of those and, and what's happening? Yeah, so the context for all of this is the classic American approach to uh, ends of war, which is demobilization. Mm -hmm. And for the United States, the paradigm is if you lose a war, you demobilize. Uh, if you win a war, you demobilize comprehensively. Okay, And so because we've just won a war, we demobilize comprehensively. So the Navy is operating in a very, very busy post-war environment, very complicated global post-war environment, particularly uh, around the continent of Europe and in, in, in the waters around the Middle East and in the Far East, uh, against the background of demobilizing the fleet. Okay, mm -hmm. so we got to remember that there's this big urge: bring the ships home, demobilize. Navies are very expensive to operate. And we're also headed for a series of Republican presidents who do not want to spend money on right. On well, they they'd like to spend less money uh, on the military overall, drastically less money, particularly on the army, but also on the navy. Even though Republican administrations. Uh, because of Teddy Roosevelt, have tended to be the friend of the Navy prior to World War I. Um, and, and so th the Navy's not unduly concerned about this. They, they figure that the, that the Republicans will, to some extent, ensure that the Navy remains the biggest part of, of the military portions of the budget, and it will. So the United States Navy will get the biggest budget share in the interwar period of, of, of the War Department and the Navy Department. The Navy Department will get the biggest budget share, by far the biggest budget share. Um, so demobilization. So the first problem is the Cold War has begun. It begins in 1917, in October, November, depending on which calendar you're using, in uh, the former uh, regions of Tsarist Russia. And the Navy is involved in that war from the beginning. So for the Navy, the Cold War begins in 1917, and it doesn't end. The decision by the Wilson administration to intervene to try to get back the war munitions that we've provided to Tsarist Russia to make sure they don't fall into the hands of the Bolshevik, uh, Bolsheviks in Russia leads to the United, States be, the United States Navy being present in the Far East in Vladivostok in the Sea of Japan, uh, and to a certain degree in the Sea of Ahos, but mostly in the Sea of Japan. And the United States Navy also ends up in, in uh, the Barents Sea and in the White Sea in Archangel and Murmansk in the north. Uh, and so the Navy's got operations in the far north. Uh, they've got ships going home. Uh, the British are still maintaining a blockade. The United States Navy has never helped maintain that blockade. It is actually helping break the blockade via the auspices of Herbert Hoover, who is using Navy ships to try to get food through to blockaded populations that the Royal Navy is still blockading because the Treaty of Versailles isn't signed yet. The Navy is very, very busy trying to dismantle mine barrages, dismantle air stations and naval stations that it set up in France and Great Britain. Um, in the Black Sea, it is involved uh, eventually in helping with famine relief, with uh, helping uh, people flee the Bolshevik Revolution and the humanitarian crisis is involved in that. It also gets involved in the Black Sea with the Armenian Genocide and the problems with the Turks. So it's actually helping ashore, trying to initially 
helping American citizens, but in some cases it will actually uh, help uh, help withdraw people fleeing the Bolsheviks, white, white Russians, so to speak, uh, Armenians fleeing the Turks. So the United States is very heavily involved in what we today call humanitarian assistance operations uh, or security and assistance and stabilization <laughs> operations. <laughs> and we actually create a Black Sea fleet under Rear Admiral Mark Bristol. He sets up operations in the American embassy in Istanbul and runs the Black Sea Fleet out of Istanbul with telegraph lines uh, and, uh, and wireless telegraphy. Um, and he, so he operates essentially a fleet of mostly destroyers and smaller ships, uh, although for a, for a time his flagship is actually the cruiser Olympia from the Battle of Manila Bay. Oh, wow. uh, but uh, um, there's also a fleet in the Adriatic that's helping to, uh, helping to demobilize the Austrian fleet, protect Austrian fleet ships for, for uh, disposal, uh, but really protecting them from our former allies, the Italians, and helping actually protect the, the Yugoslavs or the Southern Slavs, the Croatians, and various Slav communities from the Italians. So the United States Navy is very heavily involved patrolling the Adriatic against the Italians also patrolling the Eastern Med, again, against the Turks and the Italians. And so these, these humanitarian assistant operations are very wide-ranging. And essentially what the Navy is doing is they are an armed naval maritime wing of the State Department, uh, uh, helping the State Department and helping enforce uh, Wilson's vision and after Wilson's stroke, the administration's vision of what the United States' role in the world is, which is essentially to oppose colonialism and expansionism by the now victorious powers of the European powers. All right. So the United States is very heavily involved in sort of anti-colonialism after the war is over and humanitarian assistance. So let's go ahead and start with uh, probably what you identify as the biggest single issue. We've got this whole series of power vacuums with the collapse of the Russian, uh, Austrian, and Turkish empires. Uh, and you mentioned several actions around Russia. So let's start with this issue of war supplies that we had been shipping to the Tsarist government uh, as our ally during the war. The Tsarist government, of course, collapses in early 1917. So walk us through why there are Americans involved in trying to get these supplies out of Russia and how the Navy kind of approaches doing that. So the decision to intervene, and the greatest book on this, of course, is George Kennan's The Decision to Intervene. Um, uh, well worth reading. Uh, the first of his two books on, on the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, it occurs in the summer of 1918, and again, it's, it's an allied intervention, so it's not just the United States. It's primarily the United States and Great Britain, and in the Far East, Japan. So the United States and Japan are the big uh, force providers. Now, these are overseas operations, so when you're going through Vladivostok, you've got to go across the Pacific through the Sea of Japan. Uh, when you're going into Archangel and Murmansk, which is in the European side in the northern waters there, you're going to have to go across the Atlantic. So you need the Navy to escort the shipping uh, into these places and to maintain support for the troops ashore. Uh, 5,500 American troops will get to Archangel. How do they get there? They do not walk, dear, dear listener. They go on ships. <laughs> that means you need the Navy up there. Well, because you've got the Navy up there, and again, the Olympia is up there initially as the flagship for the North Fleet, all right? And so the American Admiral up there will actually be on the Olympia. 
He'll sell it back to England where Bristol will get it, and then Bristol will use it for the Black Sea Fleet. And so we've got 500 American troops in Archangel. Some of these troops are actually Marines and sailors who are put aboard ashore as shore parties to assist in the protection of these supplies that have been offloaded in Murmansk and Archangel, which we're trying to load back onto ships and pull out. What happens is the British and the Japanese become involved in fighting the communists, mm. the Bolsheviks. The United States maintains a policy of strict neutrality, but at the pointy end of the spear, you end up with sailors, Marines, and American soldiers actually involved in combat operations, uh, both in the, in the Russian Far East, in Siberia, and in, uh, in the Russian Far North, uh, around the White Sea at Murmansk and Archangel. Uh, and so there's naval involvement there. Uh, the primary uh, point of contact is Archangel, uh, and the guy in charge is uh, Rear Admiral Newton McCulley. Uh, he actually marries a Russian gal and uh, adopts all of these Russian children as a way to sort of save these children because we're not officially supposed to evacuate uh, uh, evacuate uh, Russian citizens. So he marries a Russian woman and has a bunch of Russian kids that he adopts. Uh, maybe some of them are hers, maybe they aren't. And, uh, and according to William Sill, the, one of the historians of this, he says, the Admiral's orders were vague, unrealistic, and at times con contradictory. <laughs> so again, being thrown into the real world with armed forces against an enemy that's not been declared an enemy, again, this all looks very much like today, where we don't formally declare a war, we have contingency operations. The Olympia will arrive at Murmansk on 24th October to serve as his flagship. And then eventually the, the United States ambassador uh, 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 is actually in Russia and he's loaded onto the Olympia and then they leave for the United Kingdom and it's ordered home. But the Olympia gets diverted to the Adriatic, as I've already kind of talked about. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. uh, these operations are uniformly... Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't say they're unsuccessful. They do manage to claim, reclaim some of the supplies. But the United States, once it thinks its job is over, it begins to sort of pull back uh, in this very, very hostile environment. Um, the final ship, uh, the Des Moines, which is a scout cruiser, will actually leave in September of 1919. Oh, wow. Uh, but our, uh, the, the experience up here... Actually, so so these operations go on for quite some time, all right? I mean, we're talking November 1919 to, or November 1918, December 1919, so almost a whole year that the United States Navy is involved What are they pulling here. out? So people, but what other supplies? Like, are, do we have artillery? Well, the supplies are actually loaded onto merchant ships, contracted merchant ships. The problem here is the British want us to stay, and and... And remember, the supplies, some of the supplies have been shipped down the railways. So the British and the Americans are advancing down the railroads to get the supplies back until they run into the Red Army, which doesn't want to give them back. All right. And, and this actually sours our relationship with the British, uh, with mm -hmm. the British. Uh, the United States and Britain don't agree on what the policy should be. Uh, one of the sailors, a sailor from the Des Moines landing party, he gets to land ashore near Archangel in July 1919, which is good because that's the only time it's even remotely warm in Archangel. Um, and this is what he says. We had no quarrel with them. He means the Bolsheviks. Quote, we only knew that we were cold, that we were a long way from home, and that we didn't care who won. All our officers and men felt the same way. 
When he says he didn't care who won, he means the whites or the reds. He does not care. He just wants to go home. Uh, we have some of our most uh, smallest ships up there. We have subchasers. These are like uh, a subchaser is like a glorified yacht. And then we have eagle boats, which are like glorified mini yachts. And these are, these are boats that are designed to escort convoys in the North Atlantic, but they're actually up in Murmansk and Archangel uh, supporting these sailors ashore. And they have guns? They're they have guns. Well armed? Uh, they're not well armed. Just armed. They're, they're armed, but they're not well armed. Okay. Uh, we're, we're probably lucky not to lose more people than we do. We're probably lucky not to lose any ships. Uh, to the Bolsheviks up there that uh, easily, you could easily board and capture one of these things, okay? Mm -hmm. So those are our, our efforts in the, in the north, in the Barents and the White Sea. Now we move a little further south to sunnier climes, the Baltic Sea. So the French and the, Navy, the French and the Royal Navy go in and they maintain a policy of blockade, but they also have this policy of wanting to support the newly independent Baltic republics. Uh, and so we send the Chester, which had just come from the White Sea, in there as our flagship for the Baltic Squadron of the U.S. Navy to go in. And their mission, quote, endeavor to assist only in carrying out the spirit of the terms of the armistice. Okay, well, what is that? What's the spirit of the terms of the armistice? Blockade the Germans till they sign the treaty? Or does that mean provide food and medicine? Uh, and what it really means is they provide a nice vector for the Spanish flu into that part of Europe on the ships via the sailors. Not just the American sailors, but all the sailors that are on these ships. Oh, no. uh, their primary missions become famine relief and providing presence at the German ports to let the British know not to go too far. Uh, who, essentially to allow Hoover's famine relief ships to get into these ports to feed hungry Baltic. Because uh, remember, a lot of these nations don't exist. Right. They're either former Russian uh, provinces or they're former German provinces. Mm -hmm. right. And so, so, so the United States Navy, who's the enemy here? The British are the enemy here. And it's also worth pointing out, you, you referenced Herbert Hoover a couple of times. Hoover's kind of the dean of, of American relief after World War I. It's, it's, it's hard to pick any single person, but if we had to pick a single person who rebuilt Europe, uh, Hoover Hoover might get that title. So yeah. that's why his hands are in Yeah, and, you, and it, it shows you it was a different world back then where a progressive Democratic administration can go to a progressive Republican guy and, and Hoover later be Commerce Secretary yep. and use him to as a, as a food aid person. Mm -hmm. uh, this is where Hoover's long-standing animosity towards the British really begins to gain traction and legs. And so when you see the British write about Herbert Hoover, they're almost entirely negative about him mm -hmm. because they regard him as, as, as helping the Germans uh, after the Germans had signed the armistice. And, and we should also point out this is a famine largely caused by the British. Yeah, the, the worst part, so let's go back to the World War I discussion. What is this war about? Uh, what does naval warfare have to do this thing? Well, the British blockade is most effective. And this argument doesn't come from an American scholar. It comes from Hugh Strawn, a British scholar. The, the blockade is most effective and probably causes the most suffering and death after the armistice is signed in November mm. 1918. Yep. because they maintain it until the Germans sign the treaty later in 1919. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, we've, we see all these actions around Russia. Um, let's talk about the Adriatic, but I, because I think that maybe is the most foreign idea 
to Americans. The idea that, that the U.S. Navy, right after World War I, is standing between the victorious Italians and these uh, Baltic, or excuse me, Balkan states. So w what is the U.S. Navy doing there, and how does it approach that mission? So, again, it's to enforce the terms of the armistice. That means uh, things like the Austrian-Hungarian Navy are now war booty, and they belong to the Allied powers. But which Allied powers? And the Americans and the British say, well, to all the Allied powers. So, so we've got to figure, we're going to do this disposition of this war booty, okay, in terms of naval armaments. Uh, we're going to do it logically. It's, you, you don't get to just take whatever you want and then say, well, this is our piece of the pie. Um, and this is principally two uh, Austrian-Hungarian battleships that I'll go into in a second. The other piece here is geography. Uh, the Italians claim that the British and French have promised them territorial expansion into the former lands of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire. Which are also former Venetian territories. Which are also former Venetian territories, which in some cases are also former Turkish territories. Yep. And so the Italians are saying, well, we were promised this. And they essentially claim that they were promised the entire Adriatic coastline all the way down to Albania. Um, and that includes the key ports of Pola, Zara, Split, Coder on Coder Bay, and Fiumi. Okay? Um, not listed here is Trieste. Nobody is, nobody is contesting Trieste. The Italians are going to get Trieste, which was the major naval port of the Austrian Empire. That's where Captain von Trapp sailed his submarine in World War I from Trieste. Um, so, so there's no uh, Trieste contention about Trieste. Yeah, Captain Von Trapp was a U-boat commander in World War One. Now you know. Sound that's, of music, and he's a good That's singer. why the Germans want him. He's a very good submarine commander. There's so many things here. First of all, Sound of Music, one, I need a map, and two... <laughs> This is just impressive. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, we can't we can't give the Italians this entire coast, right? Because it would seriously destabilize. Right. Eastern so Europe. what's one of the what's one of the fourteen points? The, well, one of the major fourteen points that the Americans are kind of being squishy on, although they're willing to concede portions of it so that the British will join the League of Nations, is this idea of the locals get to determine who and what they are, right? right? And so the idea here is that the British and the Americans. It, to a lesser degree, the French are saying, no, these territories need to decide, do they become Austria? Do they become Slovenia? Do they become Croatia? Do they become Bosnia? Or do we just amalgamate them into a larger collection of Southern Slavic states that we'll call the Kingdom of the Southern Slavs, you know, and use the monarchy of Serbia to head that? And, and the Serbians and the Italians are historically have, well, because of the Venetian connection, have this animosity towards each other. So, mm -hmm. so the Italians are claiming, no, you promised us this booty. Uh, and interestingly, it falls to the American Navy to sort of oppose this. The British are spread thin. They're very heavily involved in the blockade, in the fight against the communists, uh, in operations in the, in the Black Sea, in operations in the Eastern Med, in operations uh, protecting their, their interests in the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf. So the American Navy kind of gets the job, and the American role is peacekeeping. So this is really peacekeeping. Now, we don't have the United Nations 
uh, chapter chapter five and chapter six and chapter seven yet. But essentially, Americans are doing what uh, people doing uh, United Nations peacekeeping and, and peace enforcement missions are doing in our own modern day. And so we end up with three sub-chasers at Fiume, Italy in November 1918. So as early as 1918, we've already got the U.S. Navy here to prevent the Italians from seizing what does not belong to them. Uh, the first guy to take charge of the Adriatic Squadron is Rear Admiral Philip Andrews. Uh, Andrews uh, uh, becomes so well-liked in the port city of Split, which is in modern-day Croatia, that he is made the honorary citizen of Split by the Croatians in, in Split. It's good for uh, him. Split is not far from from uh, Dubrovnik, mm -hmm. from Dubrovnik, and it is there that he occupies the battleships Radetsky and Zinyi <laughs> and protects the Italians from seizing them and puts American Navy prize crews on these Austrian battleships to keep them out of the hands of the Italians. Mm -hmm. Now the French are interested in this. You would think the French would do this, but they're worried that if they do it, the Italians will actually attack them. Mm -hmm. If the Americans do it, the Italians will be like, oh, maybe we better not attack the Americans. You know, they have the second biggest navy in the world, soon to be the first biggest navy in the world. And so, 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 and the French don't want the Italians to have these battleships because we're already seeing emerge from the peace of World War I the Italian-French naval competition in the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. which will entirely color French-Italian relationships in the interwar period. Mm -hmm. And so the United States is sort of the neutral guy, the trustworthy agent, except almost immediately the, Ameri the Italians begin to criticize the Americans and to berate the Americans and to do things like unplug their noses in the general direction of the American <laughs> Navy under Rear Admiral Andrews. So you've never heard of any of this, have you? No, not nope. at all. Yeah, so this is a fantastic story, and this is what the Navy is doing. All these guys, if you have noticed, are admirals. They will all go back to Washington. They will all report to the general board. They will all report to OPNAV and, and whoever the CNO is. I think it's Admiral Coots by this time. And they'll report to Sims at the Naval War College. They'll also report to the Secretary of the Navy, and they'll say, this, these are the kind of things we need a Navy for. These are the kind of things the navies really do most of the time is peacekeeping, humanitarian assistance, famine relief, uh, and presence, presence in the face of our former allied partners, the Japanese, the Italians, the French, and the British. Would Mahan be a fan of this? Would he be like... Uh, Mahan would absolutely be a fan of this. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, Mahan is dead. He's been dead since 1914. Uh, Nick Lambert is writing a new book on this about this Mahan. Uh, the man, Mahan who favors commerce rating. Mm -hmm. The Mahan who favors the Navy for uh, supporting maritime security mm -hmm. with respect to political economy in a globalized uh, econ yeah, global economy, international economy. So you mentioned when we were in the Soviet Union that we have the Navy supported by American soldiers and Marines on the ground, and it's very joint. The actions in the Adriatic Sea, is that pure Navy? Is that also joint? So the term joint is an American term that we create prior to the war with the joint board, with the joint Army-Navy board. Everybody else calls this combined operations. This is entirely a Navy Department affair, which means that the service, the U.S. Navy, and its armed infantry component, the U.S. Marine Corps, which is entirely uh, which isn't really a separate service. Uh, the Marines is a separate service. is a post-World War II construct, social construct. 
the Marines are what they really are, part of the Navy in this time frame. So this is an entirely Navy operation. Does it have elements of combined operations by land and sea forces? Yes, because the Navy is a combined force with Marines and sailors and ships and mm -hmm. airplanes. Uh, this is what Andrew says about his duty in the Adriatic. Quote, it is a curious and illuminating fact that every single army and naval officer who comes to this Dalmatian coast gradually but surely acquires the conviction that the Italians have no just claim to any part of it. Unquote. Okay. Now imagine a, a naval officer doing that today. Okay. But these guys were very outspoken. They were really sailor diplomats. And that's what they were expected to be. Uh, their training, their education, and where they came from in American society had had, had to, they knew who they worked yeah, for. Yeah, they're upper class. They're very well educated. And they know who they work for. Yeah. They work for the State Department. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they work for the State Department who's good buddies with the Navy Department. They kind of work together. The State Department and the Navy uh, back then were very closely related. Okay. Mm, might be a model for the future. Eventually, the Americans deployed over two dozen ships at one time to the Adriatic, including cruisers, including our old friend the Olympia, which is kind of making the grand tour it's here. Like the Forrest Gump. Yeah, the they're doing Perry. the grand tour, right? And and they also become involved in famine release. There's the split crisis. This is this is the crisis over the battleships where the Italians almost uh, board the ships and go and come to blows with the United States. There's almost fighting between Italian. Now, these Italians are often not uniformed Italians. They're these proxy forces, kind of like the little green men in the Ukraine back in 2014. So they're those they're they're sort of like armed militias, you know, like, you know, those guys. Anyway, when we're we, not we're not far from the the fascist takeover in Italy. So it's we're yeah, seeing the threat. We're, of that. Yeah, we're not, and if you ever wonder about why the Italians are so disenchanted and why they would sign on with a, a newspaperman socialist like Mussolini, uh, now you know. I mean, it's, there's this extreme ethno-nationalism in Italy after the war. They want they want the war to be worth it. They want all the uh, they want that over one million Italian casualties in the war to have some benefit for them, and that means the reestablishment of an Italian empire mm -hmm. in the Mediterranean. Essentially, what they want is the Roman Empire, circa 40 B.C. That's kind of what they want. That's sort of their... If you look at a map of Rome in 40 B.C., that's what the Italians want, without Gaul and Germania, okay? Right, right, right. So, um, so the Adriatic, this mission goes all the way, you're going to love this, to May 1921. So, and, and again, how do you maintain budget share? You keep ships operating in the White Sea, the Baltic, and the Adriatic. So again, the Navy always has a good argument for Congress, and it's penny-pinching in the demobilization, saying, well, we have forces in contact with the enemy. You can't, you can't demobilize those guys yet. But why wouldn't the U.S. just let Italy have those ports? Oh, they, because they they, because, because the, the so-called promise to the Italians that was made by the British never occurred. Uh, the, the British said, well, we're going to recompense you with territorial gains. They used very, very squishy, mm -hmm. you know, vague, ambivalent language, all right? And so, so this is not the policy of the great powers. And Italy, despite officially being one of the great powers, is officially not one of the great Italy powers. Italy can't be that much of a threat in 1917, 1918, 1919. 
The French regard Italy as a threat to their position in the... So the Italian Empire grows. That means the Italian Empire is going to butt heads with the French Empire. And it's going to threaten the Suez as well. And remember, there's a vacuum here. There's all these new places that are up for grabs because the German Empire and the Austrian Empire and the Russian Empire have collapsed. Which, it's fair to point out, the British and French grab a bunch of in the collapse of the Ottomans. Right. And so there's this big land grab by these three major empires, the Italian Empire, the French Empire, and the British Empire after the war. They're all competing. Okay. Well, this leads us to the last one, right? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So, so the final area is the, actually the Eastern Med and the Black Sea, Admiral Mark Bristol. And Admiral Mark Bristol, Rear Admiral Mark Bristol, he looks like a bulldog, but he's got the brain of uh, a Machiavelli, all right? Uh, he's often called the American Lafayette uh, because he, uh, That's sexy. He, he's sort of this sailor diplomat, uh, he deserves a biography, which hopefully one of these days I'll write if I don't die first. Um, and not only is he the only American to ever command the Black Sea Fleet, the American Black Sea Fleet, but he also is the High Commissioner to Turkey, essentially the first American ambassador to Turkey. Um, he'll come home for a short stay in the United States, uh, 1925-1926, so he'll be in Turkey commanding naval forces and doing high commissioner stuff to support the open door policy in Turkey until until 1925. And then he'll be turned around and he'll go and command the American Asiatic fleet, whose primary job is patrolling the Yangtze and Yellow Rivers in China at the end of the decade in the 1920s. So a diplomat admiral. And then uh, he'll, he'll step down as a four-star admiral and and Bristol will become chairman of the executive committee of the general board in 1930. So fascinating guy, a true uh, a diplomat in blue, uh, as he's called by, uh, by uh, William Braisted, the great uh, naval, naval historian, Naval Braisted. So he, this guy reports, he's assigned, he's, he's one of these up-and-comers. He's part of the club that Peter Carson, Carsten calls the Annapolites, you know, upper-level Annapolis grad, Protestant, white. And his wife, Helen, is very, very proactive. She comes with him. Unlike a lot of these other guys, he brings his wife. She is part and parcel of the program, so they're sort of the original power couple in Istanbul. Initially, they're living on a yacht that is supposed to be the flagship, but Bristol said, this place sucks. I can't do any command and control here. And he moves into the American embassy, much like Sims does when he uh, establishes his flagship in London to command naval forces in Europe. And so he takes over. Again, his, his, his duties are dealing with the catastrophe in Russia, famine relief, refugee evacuations of Greeks and Armenians, uh, the Smyrna crisis and the um, Armenian genocide, and then the collapse of the white Russians in the Ukraine and Crimea and getting, you know, Russians out of places like Sevastopol, Odessa, and uh, for CGSC students, the port of Poti which is in Georgia. So how many fleets do we have operating in the interwar period? That's a, so far so, so So during this period, we actually have a Black Sea fleet, a Baltic fleet, a Northern fleet, a Mediterranean fleet, and an Atlantic fleet. So we have like five. And then wow. there's the Pacific fleet. All right, so six. Now we will go down to two fleets after the Washington Conference. 
uh, although some of these fleets kind of hang on for a little bit, but we'll actually go down to only two fleets, the, the United States fleet, okay, and the, uh, the Asiatic fleet. And so we'll have two fleets, a fleet in Asia, the Asiatic fleet. Again, Mark Bristol will be one of the commanders of that fleet. Most famously, that fleet will be commanded by Thomas Hart uh, when Pearl Harbor is attacked. And then the, the U.S. fleet. And the U.S. fleet will be the fleet. Mm -hmm. And so the commander-in-chief of the U.S. fleet will be called Sinkus Fleet. Now, right, and King will change that and call it Commander-in-Chief of the like, U.S. Fleet. Goodness, I hope so. That's so we don't have an Atlantic fleet, so the Atlantic fleet will go away, the Black Sea fleet will go away, the Baltic fleet will go away, the Adriatic Squadron. It's never really called a fleet, but it, for all intents and purposes, it's, it's a fleet. These, so these, these naval forces are sort of ad hoc forces. The only permanent fleets after the war will be the United States fleet and the Asiatic fleet. Do they go away because of funding issues, or do they go away because the threats, the concerns decrease? Good question. They go away because the missions end. Okay. Okay. So the mission uh, with respect to Bolshevik Russia will end. Uh, that does away with the Far Eastern Squadron, and it does away with the uh, with the Northern Fleet. Uh, the mission in the Baltic goes away. That fleet goes away. The mission in the Adriatic goes away. Mission in the Black Sea. Now we will still maintain presence forces overseas, but they will be ad hoc squadrons that will deploy from the main fleet. The main United, fleet, United States fleet in the interwar period would be a garrison fleet and be based in home waters in, on the east coast and on the west coast. The bulk of the fleet will be based on the west coast in San Diego. So San Diego will be essentially where the bulk of the fleet is. Not Norfolk, okay? It'll actually be San Diego, all right? Not Pearl Harbor, okay? San Diego will be the primary locus of American naval forces. There are forces, but those forces in the, in the Atlantic are part of the United States fleet. They're not part of the Atlantic fleet. They're part of the United States. There is no Pacific fleet. There is no Atlantic fleet. There's just the U.S. fleet, and then there's this collection of oddball ships in the Far East based out of the Philippines and Chefu in China called the Asiatic fleet. So we, we've covered a, a good chunk of the, the early 20th century history of the Navy. What should we take away from this uh, post-war period? The, the thing that we should take away from this is that you need a very well-educated, broad-minded, generalist officer corps with a variety of platforms to do these missions. You do need some big ships. I mean, the Olympia, the Chester, the Augusta, they, these are cruisers. You don't need battleships per se, mm -hmm. okay? Although I think all of these guys would have loved having an aircraft carrier. But uh, because aircraft carriers are cruisers, and so they bring a lot of toys to solving, to doing these missions, humanitarian assistance, famine relief, you know. Planes, planes can fly really fast and really far, and that means you can get food even deeper than you might need to, than you normally would. So these are all, so you need a balanced fleet and you need a well-educated officer corps, and they need to know something about foreign policy. Mm -hmm. And these guys do, because they are part of that sort of progressive Navy uh, that Mahan thinks should think about foreign policy. Remember, Mahan, after about 1900, is really a foreign policy guy. He's a pundit, he's a foreign policy pundit. He's interested in international relations. His best work will occur between about 1898 and 1907 when he has his stroke. 
And so that's when he's doing his best foreign policy work. And his message for his fellow admirals is that you need to study this stuff too. You need to be, you need to understand it. And, and the best place for you to do this is as an admiral in command of naval forces abroad. All right. But you need to go to the Naval War College and not just study tactics, but study policy, study strategy. So, so these were guys who came from that wing of the Navy that trained admirals to be strategists. But when I say strategists, I mean it broad-mindedly, mm -hmm. foreign policy. So, so this is kind of what they learn that they need to have. And this sort of becomes part of the DNA of the Navy. Is, is to kind of, hey, we need to understand these things. We need to be very broad-minded in designing the fleet to do these things. Um, the general board, which is headed by Mark Bristol when this is written, writes, um, emergencies cannot be forecast. Uh, there's not some illusory future readiness that we need to design the fleet for. We need to design naval forces so that they can be used for emergent crisis now. So the Navy needs to be ready to go for these kinds of operations now. We, we're not going to be given time to design a fleet to do this, so we need to design the fleet that can do these things now, not in the future. I like him. Yeah. No, Bristol's a great guy. He's uh, one of these fascinating guys that nobody knows anything about. Uh, another guy is William Pratt. He's the guy at the Washington Conference who says, yeah, I'm going to put in my lot with the Secretary of State, Charles Evans Hughes, and I'm going to go against the Navy hierarchy and say we need to quit building battleships now. And so that's kind of where we are in 1922. Yeah, and we have another podcast episode where we discuss the Washington Naval Treaty, if you're interested. Uh, Dr. Kuhn, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, John. Thank you, Angela. Appreciate it. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.